Hello, learners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts and practitioners in the field of HR, and we bring their knowledge straight to you as it pertains to the most pressing issues facing talent management today. These are topics we can't get enough of. I'm Aubrey Witte, your host for today. If you're listening on iTunes, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover this program. Inclusive diversity is continuing to reign as a hot topic in 2018. And its essence, essentially, is that diversity is good for business, and we know this. When we give a voice to diverse sets of backgrounds, perspectives, and experiences, organizations can expect a substantial increase in engagement and productivity. But more importantly, new views and perspectives on diverse markets and customers we all serve are helped by this diverse approach. However, there are some pitfalls sometimes to diversity and inclusion, and sometimes it can result in some very uncomfortable situations, which really took the limelight in 2017 and the advent of the hashtag MeToo movement. So here to talk on one aspect about this strip from the headlines topic of harassment and inclusion is Jessica Childress. Jessica is the managing attorney and founder of the Childress Firm, an employment law firm based in Washington, D.C., And Jessica will be speaking and delivering a keynote called Your Organization's Role in Responding to Hashtag MeToo, Creating a Culture of Anti-Harassment and Inclusion at HCI's Inclusive Diversity Conference, which will be held on April 12th to the 13th in San Francisco this year. It's important for us to make sure that you know that this podcast does discuss legal developments and issues, which are intended for informational and educational purposes only. The information contained in this podcast is not intended as legal advice, and it should not be construed as legal advice. So Jessica, welcome, and how about you start by telling us a little bit about how you got into this field of employment law? Sure. Well, thank you, Aubrey, for having me. Thank you, HCI, for inviting me to speak at your conference. I'm really looking forward to meeting your guests and also talking about a topic that I think is very important, especially in this day and age. Um, I became an employment law attorney after law school. I was a federal judicial law clerk for a year after law school. And after my clerkship, I became an associate at a member of a large law firm, an international law firm, and I became a member of their employment law group. And since then, I've been working in the employment law space. Uh, That was, I graduated in 2010 and started practicing in 2011. And I've been working with these issues since that time, and it's really been fascinating to see how employment law has evolved uh, in, the, in the years that I've been practicing. So, Jessica, I have a couple questions to ask you, especially around this topic of inclusion and as it relates to a lot of what's going on right now in popular media. You know, a lot of the uh, news stories that we are all hearing and the hashtag movement of Me Too, um, and a lot of that information, I think, has drummed up a lot of questions among people that work in HR and HR leaders. So one of the first questions is, Why do the federal laws we have that provide a safe space for workers fall short, clearly, for most organizations? That's a great question. And the federal laws, just to give you a general overview of how the employment laws work, the federal employment laws, the most popular being Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, really provides just the minimal threshold for what companies have to protect, what identities companies have to protect. 
So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. It protects an employee from being discriminated against on those bases. And there are other civil rights, federal civil rights laws, like the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which protects workers who are 40 and older. Uh, there are There's also the Americans with Disabilities Act and a few other federal laws that protect certain identities. But those laws really, again, only provide the minimal threshold for what employers have to protect. There are a host of other identities, and I'll just use the example of LGBT communities and people who fall within the LGBT class. Sexual orientation is not protected under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So if you have an employee who feels as though they're being treated differently because of their sexual orientation, if a company only is protecting what Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects and what Title VII requires them to protect, then there's a whole class of people who may not feel safe at work, who may not feel safe in reporting uh, disparate treatment or harassment on the basis of a protected category that the law doesn't protect. And if you have an employment policy or an employment handbook that says, we protect race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, all of the classes that Title VII requires you to protect, but then you leave out this whole category of people uh, who bring their identities to work and who should still be treated equally because of those identities, there is a gap, right? There's this gap in safe spaces. And that's something that organizations really should be cognizant of and work hard to fill in. Great. Thank you for that explanation. So one of the things I think has happened, especially over the last six months, is as some of these stories about harassment are coming to light, um, forgive me, but a lot of us are playing armchair attorney about how these companies are responding. And we've seen kind of a, it's run the gamut of how different organizations have responded to some of these allegations. But I'd like to get your opinion and perspective on how organizations can better prepare for how they might respond to workplace harassment. And kind of sideline to that, what's the ramification of keeping top talent in place despite getting complaints about those individuals? Sure. And I'll go back. I'll bring in the first question. Uh, I'll bring that up again. Just when we talk about harassment, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act defines harassment, and the Supreme Court has defined harassment. And it has to reach the level of severe and pervasive. It has to be abusive or hostile for it to be actionable, meaning for someone to have a viable or successful legal claim. And that's really a high standard for an employee to reach, hostile or abusive. So think about that. Do you really want to say in your policies or in your practices that before we respond to your workplace harassment claim, it has to be hostile or abusive? You have to be working in a hostile or abusive workplace. What does that do to productivity? What does that do to the morale of the people who work for your company? So that's something that employers should constantly be aware of. And thinking about workplace harassment and thinking about the culture, they should be actively trying to promote a culture that's open, that doesn't set the standard for harassment and hostile or abusive, but really tries to create a culture that's open. So when thinking about that, we need to think about our responses to complaints. There needs to be something in place, a a thorough plan to respond 
if someone feels uncomfortable, not just if they feel like they're in an abusive or hostile environment, but when someone feels uncomfortable, they should feel comfortable talking to management. And every single day, senior management should be working at uh, allowing people to feel comfortable reporting. So that's the first thing, having a reporting uh, policy in place that people know about. It's not enough just to say, we have this policy in place, but no one knows how to use it, right? So we have to continue to train people on how to use the policies and knowing that people should know that there will be no harassment or retaliation for reporting misconduct or conduct that seems unwelcome. So those are the two things that organizations can do is having a policy that allows people to report unwelcome conduct and then telling people how to use it so that companies are not just talking the talk, but they're walking the walk in their practices. And going, Aubrey, to your second question about the ramifications of keeping top talent in place despite complaints, there's really no one-size-fits-all model in how you respond to a complaint about a manager who has allegedly harassed someone. The manager may not have known that the conduct was unwelcome. So it might just require a simple communication or counseling with that manager or that other employee to let them know, hey, what you said to Bob or to Jane wasn't something that was welcome. That person felt uncomfortable by what you said. So try to change it. But it depends on what they said, right? If they said, hey, you look nice today, Jane, and Jane didn't say anything and Bob didn't know, or I guess I'll use another example, John didn't know that that comment was unwelcome, then that might not be something that requires a discipline or an adverse action. But if Bob continues to say, Jane, you look really, really great today. You look really, really great today, and then winks at her. And, or you look really, really great today and make some obscene gesture, then that's really approaching the level of inappropriate. And the company should assess what their culture is and how that conduct fits within their culture. So even if the conduct from Bob isn't necessarily illegal, that conduct may not fit within the cultural mores of the company. And the company should determine, hey, do we really want Bob to be the face of this company? Do we really want him to represent our brand? It may be time to do something with Bob and that, that something may be kicking him out of the organization. And that's something that a company really needs to think about what their values are beforehand, because their values in the law may be very different, right? So values may be, we're going to create a culture that's inclusive, where everyone feels comfortable. So even though Bob's conduct may not have been illegal, it's still something that made a, an employee feel unwelcome and, um, and uncomfortable. And so Bob really isn't fitting in with the culture that we've set. And that's how you really create the culture of inclusiveness in anti-harassment. Great. Thank you. So what I'm hearing is that organizations need to have a plan in place for when people just feel uncomfortable, right, before it reaches this level of what is considered pervasive harassment or, or really inappropriate behavior. And they also need to hearken back and use their culture as an anchor, right? What kind of a workplace do they want to create and what kinds of behavior is permissible in that workplace and make decisions based on that as well? Exactly. Perfect. 
Great. So, Jessica, um, I want to end with a question that hits a little bit closer to home. I know you talked organizationally about having a plan in place, but what do you feel are one or two things that HR executives should really know about dealing with harassment issues? Sure. Well, I'll go back to just a couple of things that I've said before. It's not just talking the talk. It really is walking the walk. You have to do what your policies say. The culture of anti-harassment needs to be ingrained in the culture. So anytime that senior management is talking to someone who may be an employee, who is a subordinate, or even someone who's on that senior manager's level, you should ask, you know, how are you feeling about this place? If you see something, say something. If you see something that makes you uncomfortable, or if you hear a comment that makes you uncomfortable that someone else has said, report that comment or tell the person, hey, this isn't appropriate. Really think about that culture all the time if you are an HR executive. Think about the fact that your culture is really what you're promoting. The brand of your company is what you're promoting. And make sure that the conduct of the people within your organization really match up with that culture and those values. Great. Thank you. That is a wonderful note to end on. And we so appreciate you spending some time with us today, Jessica. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. And I can't wait to meet everyone in April. (laughs) Excellent. Of course, we also appreciate each and every listener for tuning into this podcast. We encourage you to subscribe if you enjoyed your time with us. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel HCI Talent. And once more, if you'd like to hear from Jessica, please consider joining us in sunny California for our inclusive diversity conference on excellence and expertise. Please register for our upcoming event. For 9 to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, thank you for listening.